millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are so excited because we have uh, one of our regulars back today. Alex, who have we got? We have Charlie White with our 17th century historian working on a trilogy of books set in the reign of Charles II. She is also the cake lady. I'm actually glad we don't live any closer because my waistline couldn't hack it. Uh, she's a regular on Down the Pub, but she's here today to talk to us about something completely different, and that is the life of Marilyn Monroe. This is a long way from Barbara Villiers, Charlie. Why classic Hollywood? Well, I mean, this is this is my background. This is this is where I'm from. Before I fell in love with history, I fell in love with old movies, and I loved them so much. I went and studied film at university. Oh yeah, you wanted to go and work for Harvey Weinstein, didn't you? That was the brilliant plan. That was <laughs> I wanted to make. I wanted to make really cool, like indie films, but not indie films like indie films that make money. So I thought Miramax would be great, and I just wanted to. I wanted to pick up the best picture Oscar. That was always the goal. Mm. So I figured he was the guy to work for. And he was, um, clearly, but what a douche. Um, (laughs) I hope he dies in prison. Yeah. But it did not ruin your love of Hollywood. It didn't. It didn't ruin my love of Hollywood. And, you know, Barbara Villiers and Marilyn Monroe, I, I just love, I love women's stories. I love the stories of women making their way through this world that's not been created for them and uh it it, they kind of tie in in that way i guess they do i mean this one is going to be a bit sad when we get to the end but let's start at the beginning can you tell us a bit about norma jean's background who were her parents and what was her childhood like okay so norma jean mortensen was born on the 1st of june 1926 her mother was uh, working working in a uh, film studio as a negative cutter. So this is before before digital technology you actually have to cut and splice bits of film. Her mother was called Gladys, and there's a little bit of confusion over Norma Jean's father. So she was named Mortensen for her mother's most recent ex-husband, but she often gets called Baker for her mother's first ex-husband, who she kind of hooked back up with. But it's more likely that her father was a guy called Stanley Gifford, who was a co-worker at the um, at the studio and a bit of a Lothario. So Gladys had very few options available to her as a single mother. This is the 1920s, remember, and it, it wasn't great. She didn't have a husband to supplement her income and she couldn't exactly go to Gifford for any support because he was married. Her own mother wasn't really able to help her very much because she had problems of her own. 
So Norma Jean was sent to live with a family friend by the name of Ida Bollander. And, you know, her mother would go and see her every weekend, but often the visits would be cut short because, and this is no slut shaming at all, she needed to get back into the city to go out on dates. Mm. But at that time, the best thing that Gladys thought she could do for her daughter was find herself another husband and find a father for her daughter. So the Bollanders kept quite a religious household, um, not cruel, but strict. So they believed in salvation and the strap. Okay, so, you know, um, very different to the life that Gladys was living out in Hollywood, which often gets described as the flapper lifestyle. So the her family had a problem with mental health. This is, this is something that will come back and haunt Marilyn Monroe later in her life. Provision for mental health care wasn't great in the 1920s. And we know that sometimes these, these problems that are, um, that are more the sort of clinical depressions can be inherited and they can be present in a family. Her grandmother was not at all well her grandmother Monroe she actually got herself arrested and institutionalized and a few weeks later she died after having a seizure and this is in 1927 when um, Norma Jean's about one but her mother rapidly starts to unravel after her own mother's death partly because not only had she now lost her mother in an asylum but her father had also died in an asylum and the death of her mother pushed her brother over the edge and her brother went into an asylum. They're really, really troubled and they've got all these problems. But all this time, Norma Jean is safe. She's with the Bollanders. They really want to adopt her. But of course, Gladys has got no intention of letting her go. So we skip forward a few years. Everyone's sort of starting to get their shit together. And Gladys gets a job at Columbia Studios. She's film cutting there and she's telling Norma Jean, I'm going to get a home for us both. I'm going to get a home for us both. She works her ass off. And in October, 1933, she moves her daughter into a little bungalow in North Hollywood. By this time, Norma Jean's seven. And the longest she's spent with her mum under the same roof is three weeks when she had whooping cough. So this is a big change in pace for her in her childhood. She's gone from this really conservative background to being in Hollywood. She takes herself to Grauman's Chinese. She starts going to the movies. Everything seems to be going very well. But unfortunately, very quickly after moving her daughter in with her, Gladys suffers um, what, what was called at the time a mental breakdown and ends up institutionalized. And Norma Jean is sent to an orphanage. This is just such a sad start to her life. No, it's it's heartbreaking because, of course, the Marilyn Monroe we know is so glamorous, and you know her her life seems, to all intents and purposes, to be completely perfect, but um, it it really wasn't. While she's in the asylum, she actually starts getting visits from her mother's friend Grace, Grace McKee. And Grace was a co-worker of Gladys at the at the film studio. And they are, you know, you can imagine these sort of fabulous 1920s, 1930s working girls, earning their own money, having a great time of it in Hollywood. So while Gladys is uh, in the institution, Grace is Norma Jean's legal guardian. And she goes to see her 
every weekend at the orphanage. She takes her out. She's allowed out. It's not like a prison. She takes her to the cinema. Um, she sends her the only birthday card she gets for her 10th birthday. And she basically really, really falls in love with this kid. And uh, eventually she takes her out of the orphanage and she goes to live with Grace and her new husband. Yay! Well, Yay. something positive. Was she a film fan as a kid? You've mentioned that she was going to the cinema. She was. She the the star that she most looked up to was Jean Harlow, who was you know completely beautiful, platinum blonde. Um, she was starring in a lot of those pre-code uh, Hollywood films where she got to be really kind of flirtatious and you know, naughty and get away with it. Not like not like after Hollywood started having to self-regulate. But Grace would actually tell Norma Jean, you know, look, look at Jean Harlow, look how glamorous she is. You can be the next Jean Harlow. And she'd take her to try on lipsticks and get her hair marcelled. And yeah, she was really, really um, into the cinema and into all that glamour. So there are conflicting reports, but was she abused? And where does this lead to when she's 16? Yeah, there's, there's numerous conflicting reports about the young Norma Jean at any time between the ages of about eight or nine and her early teens having been sexually abused. The stories go from anything from being in foster families and it being an older boy who was also in care to the perpetrator being Doc Goddard, who was Grace's new husband. In every story, there's a common theme, which is that basically no one believes her um, and she gets told off for causing trouble and speaking out. So these are uh, this is a really sort of horrendous um, view of what might have happened to her. Um, and various biographers over the years have taken different different approaches to it from being sympathetic to being downright creepy and basically saying, well, you know, she knew she was pretty and she kind of, you know, invited the attention. So slut shaming the abuse it, victim. So as you know, this is... attractive trait in people, isn't it? Ugh, a real, Blech. real pet hate and really horrible. Whatever happened in that house, we know that um, at some point in Norma Jean's early teens, she couldn't live with the Goddards anymore. They, they didn't want her. Doc Goddard was offered a job in West Virginia and the rules were such that if they were going to take Norma Jean out of the county they would stop receiving a stipend for her so she wouldn't they wouldn't have any extra money to look after her so there is an argument that perhaps they didn't want to take her with them because they didn't want to pay to feed her and there is also the argument that perhaps they didn't want to take her with her because he was touching her up Mm. so we don't really know so much of Marilyn's life is myth and conjecture you know we, we just can't say for sure but she had two two choices at this point she could either go back into the orphanage because she was 15 at the time or she could get married and they went with the latter option and she married literally the boy next door she married the boy who lived next door to them they'd been out a few dates they got on he was a nice lad and she was married to him three weeks after her 16th birthday oh it's just so sad at this point we're we're coming up to world war ii aren't we what does she do during the war both in terms of is she part of the war effort and 
she begins modeling doesn't she she was a model before she was a film star in the early 40s yes she was so obviously we're we're in america so their their entry into the war is is different to the narrative that we know here in in europe but jim doherty uh, marilyn's husband he was a young man of 21 22 and he starts seeing after pearl harbor a lot of his friends are getting a new uniform and he's thinking you know come on i i need to go and help i need to go and uh be a part of this so he took a job as a physical training instructor with the maritime service and norma jean lived with him on base and she fucking loved it so all of a sudden there's dances there's classes to get involved in she at this time gets into weightlifting so little known fact about marilyn monroe she actually lifted weights that's why she had such great arms uh. um yeah so she liked fitness and all of that stuff eventually uh jim goes off on a boat he's a merchant marine he goes off on a boat early in 1944 he's part of a convoy getting supplies to macarthur's troops in italy that's what he's up to. And Norma Jean has to leave the base. So she moves in with his family and starts working at the radio plane company on an assembly line, packing parachute. Um, essentially, they're making drones, the first drones. And so they're unmanned little planes that are flying over. And this is where things start to move for her. The factory owner suggests to his friend, who's the captain in charge of the army's motion picture unit, that he should come and photograph the girls in his uh, factory because they're gorgeous. Little um, sidebar of history there. That particular captain was Captain Ronald Reagan. There we go. Ah. Oh, I know. Oh, wow. So how, yeah, I mean, little sort of trousers of time and how these people cross over is, is so, so interesting. But an army photographer goes to the, um, the factory and he's going to photograph girls for Yank magazine. Um, I love the suggestive title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she's photographed spot welding, folding parachutes, you know, kind of Rosie the Riveter stuff. And everyone loves her kind of girl next door look and she eventually these photos are shown to a, a model agent and she starts modeling so she's doing eight hour days at the factory packing her parachutes doing all that sort of stuff and eventually she moves in with with um, an aunt of grace's in west la so that she can after work go and do a modeling job and eventually this becomes you know this is this is where she's making her money Unfortunately, what happens is that Jim is not particularly pleased with what's going on with his wife at home. So just after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, he's somewhere off the coast of Argentina on his boat. And he's thinking, Do you know what, I'd quite like to call my wife because, you know, this shit's going on. And the, the aunt who she's staying with tells him that his wife is off somewhere. And he's so pissed off, he applies for leave, um, but he gets denied. So he has to sit and you know, be on his boat until early 1946, he manages to get back. And he comes home to a pile of unpaid bills for dresses, makeup, all the shit that she needs to model. Because, you know, if you look cheap, you don't get paid right. So, you know, she's, she's spending all his money. And he, he is not happy 
he doesn't recognize his wife this is not the needy little girl lost that he married this is this sort of independent career woman who's being photographed and going off for weekends with strange men getting photographed while he's at home and what we have here is what becomes called the Rosie the Riveter paradox which is this whole generation of women who in the war were asked okay come on get on with it go to work go make money go and do do things and then when their men start coming home it's very much a case of okay now back home get in the kitchen get back in your box and she doesn't want to go back in her box so when June goes back out yeah (laughs) exactly amen to them I mean they were they were having a blast. She was working her tits off and enjoying it. Jim goes back on his boat. He's in Shanghai um, around spring 1946. And he gets a letter from a Las Vegas attorney um, because Norma Jean had filed for divorce. Sorry, Jim. But I no. Know. I, know. I think he was a good man. I think yeah. he had I think he just, you know, he, she changed. He didn't change. She changed. So things start going really well for Norma Jean. She's got this uh, this great agent, this model agent, who um, takes her to a salon and dyes her auburn hair platinum blonde because blondes can be anything in photographs. They can be innocent or they can be naughty. You know, They don't just have the girl next door look, which is why it's such a great colour to be. Um, <laughs> to the, the, the three blondes <laughs> recording this, yeah. Oh, yes. Her, her agent manages to, she's, she's trying to get her meetings at studios and she's kind of turning up a little bit of a blank with them. So she feeds a story to the press that Howard Hughes, the aviator, you remember Howard Hughes, the guy who, who um, discovered Gene Harlow as well, she feeds a story to Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons that there's this girl called Jean Norman who he's crazy about. And they ran the story and all of a sudden calls started coming in. So how does she, as Marilyn Monroe, come to be born? And how is she building her career in Hollywood at the time? Okay, so Hollywood at this time um, is operating what's known as a studio system. There are the big studios. You've got Warner Brothers, who were actually brothers, MGM, Fox, and they take in starlets, so new stars, and they develop them, they give them classes, they teach them how to act, they teach them how to talk, how to sing, how to dance, and they build them up into stars. She meets a guy called Ben Lyons, he's the head of casting, and he takes one look at her and just thinks, this girl has got something, she's fabulous. But the name, Jean Norman, it's not really doing it for him. So he says to her, okay, let's have a look at you. Uh, you. You need a new surname. So she takes her mother's maiden name, Monroe. And he's looking at her and she reminds him of an ex-girlfriend he had who was a Broadway star. So he says, right, that's it. You're Marilyn Monroe. And that was, that was how she got the name. He actually lent her $15 back rent, this guy, who was a good guy. And years later, she wrote to him and she said, you found me, you named me, and you believed in me when no one else did. So she never forgot that. Mm. So he gets her signed to Fox Studios as a starlet, but she gets really frustrated very quickly because basically all they want her to do is stand and be photographed and to go out on kind of bullshit modeling jobs and personal appearances and she's not really moving up 
as fast as she would like. So it kind of becomes a bit of a wavy line here. The following year, Fox declined to pick up her option and they ditch her. But because you can't keep a good girl down, she's already made quite a lot of friends in the executives at Fox and they help her out and they find her a walk-on role with a few lines in a Marx Brothers movie called Love Happy. And again, this is where things start to move. She's on screen with Groucho Marx and people see this and one very, very big agent sees her performance and thinks again, this girl has got something and his name was Johnny Hyde. Yes. Okay. So tell us who Johnny Hyde was and what impact he had on Marilyn Monroe's career. Johnny Hyde was an agent at the William Morris Agency. So big, big agency. And he just, like I say, she, he thinks she is absolutely fabulous. He thinks she's so fabulous. uh, He became completely obsessed with her. So not only did he push her career hard, he bought her expensive gifts. He fell in love with her. He left his wife and his kids, set himself up in a bachelor pad and even paid for her plastic surgery in her nose and her chin. So the impact Johnny Hyde had on Marilyn Monroe's career cannot be underestimated. He tried to marry her and she wasn't having any of it. She told him she was, she loved him, but she wasn't in love with him. You know, a very uh, handy, handy one to, uh, to use. But he did do her a massive solid in that he secured her first two breakout roles. What were her breakout roles? These are still great films, and this is what's unusual about them as breakout roles. A lot of the times with starlets, they're put in some real shit, and uh, you have to kind of get through these terrible films to get to their good films where they're starring. But Johnny Hyde had a theory that she should work small roles in great films being directed by great directors with great scripts rather than aiming lower to a a director who might be prepared to give her a bigger part in a shittier film. So her breakout roles were in The Asphalt Jungle as Angela, the young blonde mistress of a lawyer down on his luck. That was directed by John Huston, so a big, big director. And Then she had the role of Miss Caswell as the starlet in All About Eve. And to be on the screen next to Betty Davis for a starlet is is huge. So Johnny Hyde actually told Marilyn Monroe not to bother even showing up to the premiere of The Asphalt Jungle because no one would know her before they saw the film. But boy, when they saw it, they would want to know who she was so his influence started her off on this absolutely brilliant track he secured her a new contract at fox a seven-year contract which is very very good he pushed her hard and she worked so hard between 1949 and 1950 that she actually had six films released in the same year four of those set up by johnny hyde but then he died He had a heart attack after a long-standing heart condition. And uh, that was it. That was it for Johnny Hyde. And she's not like, so this sounds brilliant, but she's not happy, is she? Why is that in terms of the work she's doing? Well, 
she was worried about being typecast. So she noticed very early on that the kind of roles she was being cast in were similar. They were a young, ingenue, dumb blonde. And she was concerned that she would be stuck in that. But around this time, she expressed an interest in a new adaptation of the Brothers Karamazov that was happening. But that hit the trade papers and they took the piss mercilessly. And that really affected her for years to come. This thought that she can't, she couldn't do a role of any, quote, value. She was stuck in that cast and that would be all that she would ever be good for. I feel really sorry for her. Yeah, what does she do? She decides like, to be really proactive, doesn't she? She does. She, she looks at these things and she thinks, I'm, I'm not good enough. So we've got massive imposter syndrome here, which is really going to haunt her throughout her whole life. She takes herself to classes. She takes acting classes. She actually even enrolls in a class run by Michael Chekhov. He's the nephew of the Russian playwright. Mm. Um, she plays Cordelia opposite his King Lear on stage, just a little production. And he was really impressed with what she did. He thought she was great. But again, the press took the piss. They were asking her, when are you going to do Lady Macbeth? And all this stuff, which is horrendous. But about this time, she's going to Hollywood parties. She's meeting some real intelligentsia. And through a mutual friend, uh, Elia Kazam, she meets Arthur Miller this early in 1950. And she tells him about her worry about being typecast. And he writes to her with this advice. This is what he says. Bewitch them with this image they ask for. But I hope and almost pray you won't be hurt in this game, nor ever change. End quote. So... Very um, astute there from Arthur Miller. They wrote to each other for the next decade um, because he will, he will show up romantically later. He will, but someone else comes in romantically first, doesn't he? <laughs> there is. There's someone else first. There is a, a, a first guy we need to talk about. So in April 1952, she goes on a blind date that she does not want to go on with Joe DiMaggio, the famous Yankee baseball star. She doesn't want to go because she thinks he's going to be some flashy sportsman. I mean, they're hard to imagine now. Can you imagine a sort of flashy, awful sportsman? Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he turned up on their day looking like essentially a bank manager and a conservative bank manager at that. So she really liked him on site. She liked that he was shy. She liked that he was, you know, quiet and conservative. Um, They went out three times in that first week, but you can take the fact that he is very conservative now as a great big fat foreshadowing on Mm. trouble ahead. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go well. So their relationship is, it's fast because they are, um, they're, they're so famous. They're super famous and the press love them. They love this romance. They think it's absolutely fabulous. Marilyn starts getting bigger roles because she's involved with Joe DiMaggio and she's all over the press. She gets her first starring role in Niagara playing a seductress who's inducing another man to kill her husband. It's not the most 
um, original plot for a film at all, but the studio figured that no one's really going for the plot. They're going to look at Marilyn and to a lesser extent, Niagara Falls. <laughs> when the film came out in February 1953, she just shot to star status like nothing. And at the same time, some photos hit the press of Marilyn in the nude. Ah, uh, these were earlier, weren't they? These were much earlier. So this was when she'd been ditched by Fox the first time. A photographer approached her. She knew him. She knew him well. And he said, I'm photographing for a calendar. I'd love to take a nude shot of you. It'll be a lovely shot. I'll give you $50. And my wife's going to be on the shoot. It's going to be nothing seedy. And she loved the photo he took. She loved it. Then anyone who sees it now, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful shot of her looking gorgeous, but but naked. And the press got hold of this. And around this time in the studio system, studio stars were not expected to behave like this. And she was pretty much going to be dragged over the coals for daring to be a naked slut how dare she Mm. but her response was perfect she talked to the press and she said to them i needed the money i knew the guy he was a decent upright guy his wife was on the set and i wish they'd got my better side and everyone (laughs) fell in love with her she really did say that she said her only regret was that he didn't get her best side and everyone just went oh my god she is adorable so the star status just keeps going up and up. You've got the, the romance with Joe DiMaggio. You've got her first starring role. Now this dealing with this nude scandal, she is on the cover of every paper. And they give her this great role that will come to really set her up as Lorelai Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. See that one I have heard of. There you go. See, she was, again... The role was the kind of role that she would be trying to break out from, but it sets her up. It sets up the image of Marilyn that we know as the money-hungry, dumb blonde, but with a suggestion that there's a little bit more to her than meets the eye. And she explains at the end of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes that she can be smart when she needs to, but that most men don't like it. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? (laughs) It really is. So how famous was she at this point? And was she a diva? She was super famous at this point. Um, People were coming to see films just because Marilyn was in them. She was cast very quickly after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in How to Marry a Millionaire, opposite Lauren Bacall and Betty Grable. But they remembered her being so nervous she betty grable was the fox blonde before marilyn was so she was again super famous and she was the the big girl on set and lauren bacall is you know lauren bacall and she's married to humphrey bogart this is hollywood royalty and who is she who is this little little norma jean from the backwaters of of california where no one knows where anything is All of a sudden she's in here. But Betty Grable gives her the big dressing room so that she feels like a star. And Lauren Bacall and Betty Grable both paint her toenails for her so that she can be photographed by the the photographers who come to see her. 
Lauren Bacall even takes her for dinner with Humphrey Bogart and explains to him later on, she remembers saying, this girl is confused. She wants to be happy, but she's not. I'm not even sure she's an actress, but she wants to be, end quote. So she, at this time, is a star, but she doesn't feel like one. And her nerves really start to affect her performance. When she's shooting The River of No Return in the summer of 1953, she keeps forgetting her lines. And it's not because she hasn't prepared. It's not because she hasn't sat up all night with her acting coach. She has an acting coach called Natasha Lightes. And they work together on everything. Marilyn is so scared of being unprepared that she works and she works and she works. But she gets on set and all of a sudden that nervousness hits. She has a childhood stammer which comes back. And people start to think, you know, she's a bit of a pain to work with. But then she does actually turn into a pain. And this is what I love. Because she gets away with so much she realizes that she can um, throw her weight around a little bit. And she's supposed to work on this film called Pink Tights. She shows the script to Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio doesn't like it because, again, essentially she's playing a dumb blonde whose only function is to be ogled, and the script is really, really shit. So she says, I'm, I'm not filming this. This is crap. You can't put me in this. Put me in something decent or I'm, I'm not doing it. But the studio system doesn't work like that. And she gets put on suspension, which means she can't work. She's not getting paid. It's a slap on the wrist. So Marilyn has this great idea. Rather than that hit the papers and the story be about her being suspended for being naughty, she'll marry Joe DiMaggio. So they get married on the 14th of January, 1954. She tips off the press and they all turn up take loads of photographs and that's the story that runs not that marilyn's behaving like a diva and has got herself kicked off the set good girl she was smart she really was millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think she really was. Uh, so she does, and as... I guess we see, we've seen it with other people, haven't we? So this all gets a bit much, all of this fame thing and this being under a constant microscope and she just has enough and buggers off out of LA, doesn't she? And that's where Arthur Miller comes back into the story. It is. So the DiMaggio's, everything moves very quickly with them. This is super, super fast. So they get married, 
They go to Japan for a honeymoon because he's got to work. She goes, hops over to Korea, as you do, and sings for the troops. So those are famous photos of her in the sort of sparkly, um, very low-cut dress, singing for company after company of American troops stationed in Korea. Joe DiMaggio is not impressed with any of this shit at all. He does not like it. He asked her when they got married, she got married in a high neck suit because he said, can we keep the low cut stuff for the movies, please? He does not like his wife being ogled or being on show. Married the wrong woman, didn't he? He knew what he was getting. She said he, he knew who I was when he married me. He knew what my job was. When they get back from honeymoon, they, they rent a house, but she goes straight into filming another film for Fox. Uh, There's no business like show business. It's not entirely shit, but it's not one of her best. And Joe DiMaggio is starting to get increasingly pissed off with his wife working and being away. And he really wasn't happy that she was playing another dumb blonde and that she was choreographed to lift her skirt up in front of the camera. This stuff pisses him off. And he has this blazing row with her just before she's due to fly to New York to film at the seven year itch. And he, he shouts the odds at her and says, look, you're trapped in this jazz baby image. Sort your shit out. I'm, you know, this is not behavior of my wife. So she goes off to New York to film with Billy Wilder. And a couple of days later, he shows up, DiMaggio shows up unannounced and sits on set with a face like boiled piss for days. She's just this what is, you want. It's just no one needs that when they're trying to work. But this is the final straw and it is just so unfortunate. It's the worst combination of things that could have happened. So at midnight, she gets driven for a shoot on the corner of 52nd and Lexington and she's wearing a white backless dress and there's it's all cordoned off, but there are thousands of New Yorkers and press who've turned up to see this. They're invited come and see this it's going to be fabulous and DiMaggio had to stand there and watch as his wife's skirt got blown up over the subway grate in that real iconic Uh, shot yes I love that shot it's so perfect it's the kind of thing that even if you've never seen a Marilyn Monroe film you know about the skirt blowing up you know everyone has seen that even if they haven't seen it which is just crazy levels So she gets back to her hotel room at 4am to a screaming match with Joe DiMaggio and he leaves. And that's basically it. Um, We, we don't know if there was abuse in the marriage, but people did report her having bruises the next day on her arms. But again, this is the kind of thing that, we, we weren't there. We don't know. There's so many conflicting reports. We don't know if, if he, if he grabbed her or pulled her around or, or gave her a slap. We just don't know. But we know that that is effectively the end of the DiMaggio's marriage very, very quickly. So can you tell us, well, cause you mentioned him before, Arthur Miller. Can you tell us more about him at this point? Yes. Arthur Miller. So after the DiMaggio's are, broken up Marilyn emancipates herself and she she declares that she's free from Hollywood and quote no longer contractually bound to 20th century Fox end quote absolutely not true she's just decided to announce 
that she's free. She is feeling really guilty artistically for having played in Seven Year Itch the same character that she played in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and in How to Marry a Millionaire. So she decides, I'm leaving this man. I'm getting away from this. I'm leaving Hollywood because it's a tyranny and I'm going to go to New York. And this represents to me artistic freedom. She moves in with a friend of hers, a photographer friend of hers called Milton Green and his wife. And on New Year's Eve, they host the incorporation of Marilyn Monroe Productions. This is revolutionary at this time for a Hollywood star and a female Hollywood star at that to up sticks, piss off out of Hollywood and set up her own production company. This is things that people don't know about Marilyn. She was a rebel and even the press who didn't like her were really admiring of her courage in doing this. She starts seeing Arthur Miller around around this time, uh, beginning of 1955, but the Hollywood gossip trades are painting her as a homewrecker because Miller was married, but he would say later that his marriage was dead by the end of 1954. Uh, they had kids, so it's perhaps understandable and again, not unheard of for a couple to stay together because they have children. Uh, they kept them, their relationship was quiet as they possibly could. And Marilyn threw herself into New York and that sort of intelligentsia scene. She started going to the actor's studio where she studied the method under, under Lee Strasberg. So this, the method is taking an actor and making them connect so much with their character that they're using their own emotional memory and their personal experiences until they unlock what was called the inner key, which would unlock the character and make them real. And Lee Strasberg, as part of his teachings of the method, recommended that all of his actors undergo psychoanalysis to help with the process. This is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Marilyn's health at this point. Okay, so it's, again, perhaps, it feels like pop psychology, but it's perhaps not unreasonable to say that with a background so haunted by mental illness, not in a way that perhaps now you would say, do you know what, maybe, maybe my mum's bipolar, she's got some medication for it and she's fine. This was, my mother has had a nervous breakdown and she's locked up in an asylum and my grandmother and my grandfather died whilst locked up in an asylum. So she is very much haunted uh, by this. She is plagued by crippling insecurity and we've seen this throughout her whole career so far, not feeling good enough, not, not feeling that she is performing well enough. She suffered from wild mood swings and what's later been described as frightening ambition. So she would work so hard and push herself so hard because she wanted to be the best because she wasn't good enough. All of these things in this vicious cycle. Arthur Miller really tried while they were together in these early days to counterbalance her because she would go into depressions. He'd try and be lighthearted around her, which isn't always the best tact. By the end of 1955, her 
life is being guided by these three men and she's letting them do it. She's got Lee Strasberg telling her about the method, about acting and pushing her into psychoanalysis with various doctors who would become a whole separate obsession of hers. She's got Milton Green, her business partner, and she's got Arthur Miller, who she looks up to as the smartest man she knows. The, he is just the best thing since sliced bread. Tell us about the misfits. Uh, the shoot is a nightmare, isn't it? And Fox actually drop her. It really is a complete nightmare. So one of the things that Arthur Miller did to try and help his wife, especially after she suffered an ectopic pregnancy, which had to be terminated after six weeks. She desperately wanted a child. This was not something that made her happy. He promised her that he would write her a film. He'd met this old cowboy while he was in Reno getting his divorce. They later married and he wanted to make his wife happy. Not an easy task at all. So he promises he's going to write her this film, The Misfits. It can't be made because of various commitments. She gets um, she gets a role in Some Like It Hot, which is just the greatest film ever made. Again, playing another dumb blonde, but they needed the money because Arthur Miller's busy writing The Misfits for her. And it's not going well. The writing process is very, very difficult. And this starts to become a strain on their marriage. While she's filming Some Like It Hot, she's so difficult on set that even a simple line like It's Me Sugar takes over 30 takes. It's a horrendous shoot and Billy Wilder afterwards is not at all impressed with her because she told his assistant director to go fuck himself. She was a massive diva on that. But she loved Billy Wilder. He'd shot her in Seven Year Itch. She knew he was a genius and she knew that the work was worth it. So she took all of that shit out on Arthur Miller and he got her back. He got her back by writing her down on screen. He wrote a character called Rosalind for her in The Misfits, who was created from notes that he took about her. He, he noted down the way she talked, things she said, whole conversations and whole episodes from their life together were lifted and put on the page for her to act so when they're filming this finally in 1960 they're out in the desert outside reno filming this she's living this horrendous dual life of using the method and all of that psychoanalysis to bring the character of Rosalind to life while she's working and it's her own life and her own experience and she has to feel all of that shit to do the performance justice then she's coming offset and she's self-medicating she's on nembutols barbiturates sleeping pills because she can't sleep to save her life at this time and having to medicate so that she can actually perform the next day and miller keeps changing the script so every night she's having to learn new pages and the stress and the nerves and the more pills and the more pills he's sharing a hotel with her at the time, a hotel room, even though they are effectively not together anymore. But he won't leave her because he has to watch her at night to make sure she doesn't take too many pills. So I think it's fair to say that The Misfits was a nightmare shoot. It was to be her last completed film. And it was definitely for her the last time that she would ever work with people who had such genuine affection for her, genuine love for her and knew what she could do and would put up with a certain amount of stuff it was wildly over 
time and massively over budget. Most expensive black and white film ever made. Crazy. Let's take a sidebar and go yeah. off on a tangent, but it is a necessary tangent. Yeah. The Kennedys. Ugh. What are the facts? Right. So the, the, what are the facts? That's a great question. We don't know is the answer to that. There are so many conflicting reports, again, as with every part of Marilyn's life. It's been alleged that she first met Jack Kennedy in July 1960 at the Democratic Convention. Now, this would be roughly around the time that we're talking about now when she's shooting the misfits. They had an affair and very quickly he ditched her because she's quite a handful, as you can probably imagine. She's quite a lot. He had no real interest in a real relationship. He just kind of wanted a shag. So fair play to him. That's, he's done his, done his bit. She then moved back to Los Angeles in the summer of 1961 and became involved with Bobby Kennedy, Jack's brother. It's like Hollyoaks, what's going on? <laughs> Bobby was married, but he was more into the relationship than Marilyn was. And they would spend quite a bit of time together. They'd go out in disguise because they're super famous. How are you going to hide this shit? It's Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, but they'd go out in disguise and it was all well and good until it wasn't. It started to attract a bit of attention from the press and Bobby Kennedy dropped her like a sack of shit. He cut off his phone. That was it. She was abandoned. Uh, She's making plans for the future. Wasn't she? Despite all of this turmoil. She was. She was shooting another film for Fox at this time called Something's Got to Give. And she wasn't particularly into it. The script wasn't great. She didn't really want to do it, uh, but she, she had to. She even buggered off set one weekend to fly to New York and sing for President Kennedy at Madison Square Gardens because she felt that this honour of singing happy birthday to the president overweighed her commitment to Fox. But Fox used this as an excuse to ditch her. And they, they released her from the film. And shortly after her 36th birthday, they sued her for a violation of contract, using her absence, pissing off to New York and singing for the president as an excuse. But she... She was making plans at this time. Things weren't going great for her, but she took everything that happened to her as, a, as an opportunity. So she didn't really want to do that film anyway. Wasn't really happy with it. Wasn't having a great time. She spoke to Lee Strasberg and was talking about getting back on the stage in New York. She was excited about that. She pitched a Gene Harlow biopic and even travelled out to the desert and met Harlow's mum to get her blessing. She was even talking to Fox about coming back and restarting Something's Got to Give if that would greenlight her other projects. She was planning very much for the future at this time, despite the pills, despite the emotional turmoil and having broken up with Arthur Miller and the Kennedys. But, tell us but, about her death. But... The LAPD received a call at 4.25am on the 4th of August 1962 and the call said Marilyn Monroe is dead, she committed suicide. The facts that we know for sure are that one, she died and that the call came in slightly later after her time of death. So conspiracy theories start 
and they are wild and varied with various people being put into the frame. But the official cause of death was suicide by overdose of pills. What do you think happened? What's the most likely answer? Some of the conspiracy theories are crazy. Uh, people, people believe that the Kennedys did it because of her crippling insecurity and imposter syndrome. She took notes. So whenever Arthur Miller mentioned a book, she'd write it down. She'd go and read the book and then she'd feel like she could participate in the conversation. She did the same with the Kennedys. So you can imagine he's saying, oh God, we've got all this terrible Cuban missile crisis and she'd write it down. So there were people who say that she kept a journal and that the Kennedys needed that back or that they were worried she was going to talk. There's even more crazy ones involving the Russians, the mafia, the FBI. We're not getting into that. But what I think the most likely thing happened was that she had two doctors at the time and both doctors were cross-prescribing pills. She was given all the pills she needed. You, you want pills? You want, okay, here's some more pills. And I think what happened is that she overdosed. She could take quite a lot of pills. She could digest quite a lot because she was a pill popper and had been for years. But I think that the doctors were called. I think they turned up and I think they perhaps tidied away anything that would have them struck off. Because when she was found, she was found famously naked and perfect. So nothing you would expect from a drug overdose, no vomit, nothing gross. So I think whoever interfered with her did it out of love. It sounds awful, doesn't it? Almost out of out of respect so she was found in a very in a nice way rather than a horrible drug addict way which is what she was and sadly the explanation is probably that she was an addict and she died let's end like you say let's not give traction to the aliens (laughs) and the fbi and all of this crap let's talk about the fact that she has become iconic much more so than when she was alive the most recognizable face in the world still over 50 years after her death why do you think that is i think the word icon gets overused it really does doesn't it but in marilyn's case you're absolutely spot on she is an icon she's more she's gone beyond just being a woman and Norma Jean Mortensen or Baker or Gifford or whatever you want to call her has been completely whitewashed out of history. This thing exists, this Marilyn Monroe. People who've never even seen a Marilyn Monroe film know who she is and can do, this is the real thing, and can do an impression of her. If you say Marilyn Monroe to someone, they might have never seen a film and they can sing happy birthday to you like she did. She's bigger than than she ever was and frozen in time i can't remember the first time i saw her in some like it hot because it's just always been there my entire life and as a child in the 80s so 20 years after her death i grew up watching and idolizing this woman and thinking that that's what a woman looks like i got a big shock in the 80s and 90s when i got michelle suit but yeah (laughs) looking at her she's to me she was perfect but my last birthday last year I turned 37 and Marilyn never did so I'm now in this sort of weird position where this woman that I've looked up to is going to start getting increasingly younger she will never change I will and you know god willing and I'm, I'm happy very happy to age I take it as a privilege but her image 
is indelible. It's, it's fixed. It will never change. Timeless. Mm -hmm. Timeless. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on to share your passion for classic Hollywood and in particular Marilyn Monroe. We've been wanting to do something on like the golden age of Hollywood, uh, for quite a while and this is a perfect way to kick it off so thank you thank you so much for having me and letting me rant on (laughs) (laughs) join us tomorrow it is release day for james holland who has a fantastic new book out on sicily in 1943 it's fantastic he's going to talk you through the campaign sketch out some of the things that happen and basically make you want to run out and buy his book preferably from an independent bookstockist but if you really can't wait that long then run to amazon because it's amazing don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.